0: Welcome back to the Untold History of the United States. In today's episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the foreign policy initiatives set by the United States that have profound impact on the geopolitical situations we face today. The Soviet-Afghan War, the Iran-Contra Affair, and the Reykjavik Summit of 1986 all deeply affect the international order for decades to come. To talk more on this subject, I welcome a returning guest, Professor Peter Kuznick from the American University. Good to see you again, Professor.
1: Good to see you, Matt.
0: So last time we spoke, we talked about the relation between the Soviet and the Americans and how they were at an all time low in the 80s. But we didn't talk about the specifics as to why this was the case. So I want to start with the issue of Afghanistan. Many listeners know this due to 9-11 and Osama bin Laden. But the history of the country and its relationship with the United States goes much farther than that, would you say? Uh,
1: Yes, actually, um, Afghanistan wasn't really of interest to the United States in and of itself. Uh, It only became of interest in the late 1970s when pro-Soviet rebels took over the government there. Uh, But even at that point, the State Department had said that Afghanistan was not of strategic interest to the United States. But dealing with a country that was so backward, it was uh, from another time and place. In uh, 1974, the per capita annual income in Afghanistan was only $70 a year. Can you imagine that? $70 a year. Uh, The New York Times had an article in April of 78 after the uh, new pro-Soviet government said that the future looks bright for the uh, Afghan people, the New York Times wrote, the future for the people looks, uh, the, the New York Times wrote that by the standards of almost any place else in the world, however, the future really does not look all that bright, not in a land where life expectancy is 40 years, where infant mortality is 18% and no more than one person in 10 can read. The Times article went on that said, Afghanistan has very few highways, not one mile of railway. Most of his people live either as nomads or as impoverished farmers in brown mud huts behind high walls, a life scarcely different from what it was when Alexander the Great passed this way 2000 years ago. So uh, the Soviets actually were happy with the previous government rather than the new government that had taken over. But the new government began a fairly ambitious for Afghanistan program of reforms. They wanted to uh, begin to educate women, number one. They called for land reform, and then they planned to industrialize. So those were very, very positive progressive reforms that would have been in the interest of the Afghan people. But the Afghan Mujahideen, the Islamist holy warriors uh, operating out of Pakistan started a civil war. Against the uh, against the reformers, and th- then the United States started to back them. But Carter wasn't comfortable with that because these Mujahideen were so reactionary, such religious fanatics. But Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, saw this as a way to get at the Soviet Union. Brzezinski understood that if once the U.S. started to support this effort to overthrow the government there, the Soviets would have to intervene militarily. That was Brzezinski's plan. Uh, So initially, uh, the the US was hesitant to do so because of Carter. But then after the US ambassador, uh, Adolf Spike Dubs, was killed in a raid after he'd been kidnapped by Islamic extremists, then the United States decided it was gonna get more involved. And so the U.S. worked with Iranian and Pakistani intelligence to nurture this right-wing Islamic fundamentalists within Pakistan and to unleash them in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, So the United States Carter signs a directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And Brzezinski writes a memo, he says, and that very day I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. Brezhnev was smart enough to know not to do that, uh, but conditions continued to get worse there. The Soviets opted to, they try to stage a coup there and put others in power. That didn't work. And they decided they were going to oust Amin and replace him with Taraki, Taraki, but that didn't work. And finally, then Amin is uh, still in power and he, and he reaches out toward the United States for alliance with the United States, at which point Brezhnev decides the Soviets have to go in. And so the Soviets go in on Christmas day, 1979 with 100,000 troops, actually a little more than 100,000 troops. Uh, Brezhnev says, oh, we can get this finished within a month. It'll just take a few weeks, and we'll change the government there and get rid of uh, these uh, malevolent forces. Uh, the U.S. reacts to that. Carter says this is the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War. It was nonsense, of course. Uh, and uh, But the, then he issues the Carter Doctrine about anybody interfering, trying to take over the Persian Gulf region. The United States will use nuclear weapons if necessary to resist it, and uh, so so the stakes get immediately escalated. Now, the, the the people who the U.S. was supporting there, the reason why the reason why they objected so strongly to the pro-Soviet government was mostly that they were educating women, and the people we U.S. You know, supported would go into the schools and skin teachers alive who were teaching girls in the schools. Those were the beauties, the freedom fighters who the U.S. was supporting there. And so, uh, so that's where the fighting begins. And so the U.S. Did, was not a, disappointed that the Soviets invaded. The U.S. was thrilled that the Soviets invaded because as Brzezinski said, now we've given the Soviet Union its own Vietnam. So, so we have to see And the, the US at that point, before that we had cut off all aid to uh, Zia in Pakistan because he was so reactionary. Now we start giving Zia hundreds of millions of dollars worth of military and economic aid. Uh, and the US begins to work with uh, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia in order to funnel arms, funnel uh, economic aid into Afghanistan And so uh, this becomes the major U.S. operation at that point in late 1979, 1980. Uh, And then it gets taken over by Reagan when Reagan comes to power. And so then the United States actually intensifies its efforts there. Uh, So, uh, and not only do we start giving $3 billion to the Pakistani government, the largest CIA covert operation up to that date, in order to carry out this covert war against the Soviets. As all these extremists flood into Pakistan, they get trained in the madrasas, they go into Afghanistan to fight. Uh, So the US under Reagan actually doubles down and intensifies its commitments. So this continues throughout the Reagan years. But we weren't upset about the, the fact that the Soviets had invaded. We thought that we were giving them their own Vietnam. And it was a, a disaster from the very, very beginning for the Afghanis, for the women in Afghanistan, for the Soviets, not so much for the Americans, although we certainly sent a lot of money. And the people we supported there were the ugliest and the most vicious. One of our main allies there was Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was a man of legendary cruelty. Uh, According to uh, James Forrest, the director of terrorism studies at West Point, he wrote, Hekmatyar was known to patrol the bazaars of Kabul with vials of acid, which he would throw in the face of any woman who dared to walk walk outdoors without a full burqa covering her face. He also was known for skinning prisoners alive. Uh, And so the United States began to support the most extreme of all. Uh, And uh, as uh, Cheryl Bernard, whose husband, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, served as the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, she said, we made a deliberate choice. At first, everyone thought there's no way to beat the Soviets. So what we have to do is to throw the worst crazies against them that we can find. And there was a lot of collateral damage. We knew exactly who these people were and what their organizations were like, and we didn't care. Then we allowed them to get rid of just kill all the moderate leaders. The reason we don't have a moderate leaders in Afghanistan today is because we let the nuts kill them all. They killed the leftists, the moderates, the middle of the roaders. They were just eliminated during the 1980s and afterwards. And so Reagan uh, celebrates these people as great freedom fighters. Uh, the reality obviously is something obscenely
0: different. And professor, can, can we link the Mujahideen from the 80s to what was created after with Al Qaeda? Is, is there a link there? Clearly,
1: there's going to be a link, uh, and in Afghanistan, they're going to align with Al Qaeda and allow Al Qaeda to function there. The people who later blow back on the U.S. on 9/11 were people who were involved with this effort in uh, in Afghanistan at the time. We helped train them, we helped arm them, we taught them all of these these uh, terrorist techniques that they were going to later. Use uh, very, very effectively against the U.S., as well as we gave the uh, Stinger missiles that were gonna be used against the U.S. So much of the military aid we gave was later gonna blow back against the U.S. as well. Yeah, these people were trained in the, in the madrasas, and they were, then they were trained in the armed camps, and the U.S. was uh, very, very heavily involved in that from the very beginning. The U.S. made it happen.
0: And why was it so long, the war in Afghanistan?
1: And it ended until the Soviets finally pulled out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: from the very beginning, when Gorbachev came to power, he announced that he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan. But, and he asked the U.S. for help in doing it. But not only did the U.S. not help, the U.S. did everything it could to keep the Soviets tied down uh, in, in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and then uh, then afterwards, when the Soviets leave, uh, Gorbachev again appeals to the U.S. to help to, be, to help reform the situation there and make sure that the extremists don't take over. But the U.S. couldn't care less, and so that, that's that's how the Taliban uh, and Al Qaeda get in there. Uh, then it, it continues in the 1990s, but after the uh, Soviets leave, the U.S. has no more interest in Afghanistan, the US turns its back on Afghanistan, and that's when the Taliban really is able to secure, finally, a military victory there.
0: And so, Professor, um, during that time period as well, there was the Iran-Contra affair, and I think it can be confusing to some people because there are so many state actors involved in this. Is it possible you can like, explain to us exactly what the whole ordeal was?
1: Well, the Iran-Contra affair, is definitely confusing uh, to, to a lot of people. What's the best way to explain that. Uh, the, the US was funding and supporting the Contras in Nicaragua, as well as the reactionary forces in El Salvador. But the US government was very upset that there were a lot of people who were very upset with uh, the U.S. supporting such terrorist vicious forces in Nicaragua. And so the Congress passed the Boland Amendment. And according to the Boland Amendment, the U.S. would no longer be able to give aid to um, give military or economic aid to the Contras in Nicaragua. Well, that was very upsetting to, uh, to Ronald Reagan. Uh, and so Reagan tried to find a way around that. And the way they found around that was to work with the Israelis to uh, give, sell arms to the Iranian government. Uh, and, and in exchange, the Iranians would do a couple things. Number one, they would try to help the U.S. get its hostages back in Lebanon. But what the terrorists in Lebanon kept doing is they would sell some hostages back and then they'd take more hostages. So that was not working.
0: This was Hezbollah.
1: It was Hezbollah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, the U.S. was selling uh, Hawk anti-aircraft missiles and other weapons, uh, tow anti-tank missiles to Iran and then the then the money that was going for those sales which were brokered by mostly Israelis would then be sent to the, uh, to, the um, to the to the to the contras in Nicaragua so this was a major secret operation that was going on against the law behind the back of the congress uh, and kept quiet of course from the American people, but a plane got shot down, a C-123 cargo plane got shot down over Nicaragua carrying weapons. And former Marine Eugene Hausenfuss was the only survivor. And he acknowledged that that this was a CIA operation, at which point the whole thing began to unravel and the lies, uh, the dirty operations by Casey, the CIA director, by Rear Admiral John Poindexter, uh, by uh, Oliver North uh, and others, Elliot Abrams. It was all these people. The person who didn't get implicated was George H.W. Bush. Even though George H.W. Bush writes in his memoirs later, he says, I'm one of the very few people who knows all the details about what was going on he did not get implicated, but a lot of others did get implicated. And many of them were uh, convicted. Uh, they were convicted of crimes. Uh, National Security Advisor, Bud McFarlane, uh, tried, committed, tried to commit suicide, but then he was convicted. His successor as National Security Advisor, Poindexter, uh, was convicted. Oliver North, the mastermind behind the whole operation. Uh, Elliott Abrams, the Assistant Secretary of State, who's made a, a resurgence in, term, in terms of foreign policy, uh, neocon ranks. Casper uh, Weinberger was indicted, but he was pardoned. He was a defense secretary. CIA Director William Casey died of a brain tumor the day after the congressional hearings began. Uh, the Deputy CIA Director Robert Gates barely escaped prosecution. McFarlane later commented, he said that he regretted that he didn't have the guts to warn Reagan He said, to tell you the truth, probably the reason I didn't is because if I had done that, Bill Casey, Gene Kirkpatrick and Cap Weinberger would have said I was some kind of a commie. So it was just another massive operation. And and again, a, a case of total corruption. One of the other things I didn't mention about the Pakistanis was not only did the U.S. funnel enormous amounts of aid to Pakistan during this time, but the US turned a blind eye to Pakistan's efforts to build an atomic bomb. So uh, we wonder the question of why did the United States not stop Pakistan from developing an atomic bomb? Because we were complicit effectively in allowing them to do so.
0: And isn't it kind of interesting because wasn't Iran also seen as the enemy in the American public eye, but yet we were doing negotiations with them
1: And Iran was the enemy after 1979 when there was this Islamic revolution there. Right. And Khomeini comes to power and they hold the Americans hostage for 444 days, whatever it was, and and Carter's uh, captive in the White House. And that really ensured Reagan's victory in the elections and and totally undermined the rest of the Carter administration. But the US had been working uh, against Iran the, uh, the U.S. was supporting Iraq for the most part. The U.S. played both sides in the Iran-Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the Iraqis be- began using chemical weapons against Iran uh, at Hala- uh, at various places, uh, the U.S., again, did not make any issue of that. The U.S. effectively gave the Iranians the ingredients they needed to, for what they did at Halabja and other places in the so the U.S. role in that, and, and a million people were killed in, the, in that fighting. So the Iranians have a lot of reason to uh, dislike the United States, certainly. And Saddam Hussein was our ally during that period. That's going to change under George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush.
0: And so I'm interested in the diplomatic side now of Reagan and uh, Gorbachev, because uh, as you know, the uh, Reykjavik summit was uh, very important during that time, but what was the intentions of the Americans and the Soviets during these negotiations in terms of uh, nuclear disarmament?
1: Well, Reagan is a, a, in a funny position on this because Reagan, even though he builds up America's nuclear weapons, even though he manages to get a 50% increase in US defense spending between from 1980 to 1985, Uh, And even though he was so belligerent toward the Soviet Union, there was a part of him that was very, very afraid of nuclear weapons in the limited way that he could understand them. You know, he would say things, I mean, he just had very limited understanding. But uh, he, when the movie, uh, The Day After came out in 1982, which was enormously popular television movie, the second most watched television show up to that point in in television history, Reagan became very deeply depressed. Uh, And for days he was in a morose mood and that was not Reagan. They even brought in Richard Pearl to talk to him because he became so depressed during that time. And they were afraid he was going to try to disarm or do something to dismantle America's nuclear policy. And he said, he made various comments at the time. He says that if, if he realized that the Soviets were actually afraid that the United States might invade, that they took his bellicose rhetoric uh, seriously uh, and, that, and he would do things like he would, he, he was being, he was gonna go on the radio and he thought the mics were dead. And he says jokingly, uh, I've just signed legislation that will Russia for, outlaw Russia forever bombing begins in five minutes. The tapes were rolling when he says that. This is front page news all across Europe. And people were thinking he was a madman. You know, they didn't want, just like we didn't want Trump to have access to the nuclear codes. We didn't want Reagan to have access to nuclear codes, especially with his th- thinking about Armageddon, that Armageddon would come through nuclear war. You know, there's kind of craziness. And so, uh, but then once uh Gorbachev came to power, he starts reaching out to Reagan and Reagan amazingly responded. Also during this time, we had all the concerns about nuclear winter. Carl Sagan and others were warning that even a limited nuclear war could end all life on the planet. And so with this going on, Gorbachev uh, writes his first of several extraordinary letters to Reagan in March 24th, 1985. And he talks about the need to work together to eliminate this nuclear threat. And so by 1986, Gorbachev is reaching out more aggressively. Uh, And and also then April 26, 1986, is when you've got the Chernobyl accident. So the world is very alert to this. Come October, Reagan and Gorbachev decided to meet in Iceland, in uh, Reykjavik. And and there, you know, Reagan's there with his note cards, and Gorbachev makes these very very bold proposals, and Reagan can't find where to respond in his in his three by five file cards, and then uh, and and Gorbachev expresses his concern about Star, Reagan's Star Wars and limiting that to the laboratory, uh, and and according to Jack Matlock, uh, who was one of Reagan's advisors and subsequently a U.S. ambassador to Russia, he says. Uh, and, and Reagan says, well, well, we'll share our our SDI, our, our, you know, our missile defense with you. And Gorbachev, according to Matlock, Gorbachev uh, finally exploded. Excuse me, Mr. President, he said, but I cannot take your idea of sharing SDI seriously. You're not willing to share with us oil well equipment, digitally guided machine tools, even milking machines. Sharing SDI would provoke a second American revolution. Let's be realistic and pragmatic. And mm-hmm. so uh, Gorbachev puts forth these bold proposals effectively to eliminate all strategic nuclear weapons, all offensive nuclear weapons. And Gorbachev and Reagan hesitates. And, and f- finally uh, George Shultz, the Secretary of State Says to him, "This is the best proposal we've ever gotten from the Russians. Let's do it." You know, and Schultz was for it, Uh, but and then Reagan is wavering about whether to do it or not, and he asks uh, Richard Pearl, the Prince of Darkness, the most extreme right winger among them, the brains behind a lot of uh, George W. Bush's later bellicose policies, militaristic war policies. Pearl tells Reagan that if we do this it's gonna destroy your Star Wars program. They keep on going and and uh, Gorbachev implores Reagan to reconsider and Gorbachev says, if you will just promise to restrict the, uh, your Star Wars to the laboratory for the next 10 years, he says, then we'll go ahead and sign this. And Reagan says, I can't do that. I'll suffer too big a political price uh, when I, at at home, if I do that. And it, it was crushing. It was crushing that they came so close. As the nuclear historian Richard Rhodes wrote, this represented little more than a specious concern for testing outside the laboratory, system that had hardly yet even entered the laboratory in 1986. And Reagan apologized, and they were we came that close to eliminating nuclear weapons. The world would have been so much better place had we done so. Gorbachev was furious afterwards. He said that, uh, you know, he said that Reagan. He told his the Politburo. Reagan exhibited extreme primitivism, a caveman outlook, and intellectual impotence. Uh, he said that Reagan thought the Soviets were so weak uh, that that they would have to go along with this. And he said they want re, the, the U.S. wanted to exhaust us economically via an, an arms race. He said the American administration are people without conscience, with no morale. Their line is one of pressure, deceit, or greedy mercantilism. And so he was you know, just so crushed by the fact that this failed. And, and the world was crushed by that because we came so close to eliminating nuclear weapons. And now the nuclear threat is as great as ever.
0: Professor, even though you know these these were very bad setbacks, didn't these agreements uh, between these two countries lay down the groundwork for the nineteen eighty seven Intermediate Nuclear Forces and the nineteen ninety one Strategic Offenses Arms Reduction Treaties?
1: Uh, yes, but those were the booby prize
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you got. It's like the trophy they give to all the six year olds, whether on the winning team or the losing team. These are not, <laughs> these are not insignificant events. Right. I mean, the, the INF Treaty and Star Treaty, these, these are very important developments, but they um, pale by comparison to what could have been achieved and what should have been achieved. And we have not had a statesman on the world scene like Gorbachev ever since. And, and that was our moment. We had a somebody who spoke for the world, who spoke for humanity, spoke for the planet. Uh, and it would have been one of the great victories for humanity of the 20th century had we done so.
0: And do you think we'll ever have a Reykjavik summit in the near future? Or do you think it's not possible considering the increasing hostility from China, Iran, North Korea?
1: I think the hostility is coming from the US
0: primarily. Okay. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. and uh, if you heard Biden's talk today, there were some positive elements, but when he talked about the about U.S. relations with Russia and China, he was sounding like an old Cold War hawk. He says, we don't want a new Cold War, he says, but we're going to deal in, st- in power terms. We're going to deal with them. We're going to have alliances to stop Russia and China. We understand that they are hostile powers and we've got to stop them both from what they're doing. It was not reaching out an olive branch in the way that was needed by the world. And if you look at the position that China, that that the Europeans are taking toward China, uh, they're not going along with the hardline US policy or toward Russia. France and Germany are led the effort to improve relations with both countries. Uh, And uh, so the, the hardening, the stiffening that, Biden wants to see on the part of NATO. I mean, that train has left this station four or five years ago. The world is not the same as it was when Biden was vice president uh, back in 2016. Uh, and so the, the United States w- might want to play that kind of role of hawkish leader of the Western world, but nobody wants the U.S. to play that role. And So, I mean, there are some good things going on. The U.S. today officially got back into the Paris Climate Accords. The U.S. is back in the WHO. The U.S. is going to, has offered $4 billion for global uh, vaccination efforts. The United States renewed the New Star Treaty with Russia. That was so, so crucial. These are all good things, uh, but we don't want to see the world polarized, even in terms of quote-unquote democracies like the United States, where there's almost had a fascist coup a month ago in Washington, or, or you know authoritarian regimes like Russia and China, uh, who I you know I'm very critical of um, a lot of things going on in Russia and China. Uh, on Russian TV today, I was criticizing Putin for his knee jerk response to Navalny. I um, mean, I criticized the Chinese for. Hong Kong, and for the way they treat the Uyghurs, and for I mean, their their provocative policies in the South China Sea and the Strait of Taiwan. So there's a lot of criticism to go around, but uh, the United States certainly, his hands are unclean clean in all of these things.
0: Professor, thank you for coming.
1: Always happy to do it, Matt.
0: Thank you as well to our listeners. The next time we come back, we'll be analyzing President Bush and Clinton and the New World Order. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGiller National Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.